Hello, my name is Marielle Harris, and I'm one of the producers for 49. Just a quick note that this episode was recorded in September 2021 before Judd Devermont departed the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Here's the episode. Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was a national intelligence officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Ouellette. I'm chief of staff at the Open Society Foundations. And like Judd, I served at the National Security Council. I also served in the U.S. State Department and at Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all with a focus on Africa. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Burundi, and we are joined by Karine Nantulia, Africa Advocacy Director within the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch. So Judd, over to you. Can you give us the Cliff Notes version of U.S. policy towards Burundi? Sure. The United States recognized the Kingdom of Burundi on July 1st, 1962, when the United Nations ended the trusteeship over Rwanda, uh, Urundi, that had been administered by Belgium. The United States upgraded its consul in Usambura, now known as Bujumburo, to an embassy. Despite its small size, one former diplomat called Burundi a diplomatic hotspot. There were representatives from Belgium, France, United Kingdom, West Germany, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and the Soviet Union. The Chinese in particular had inserted themselves in Burundian politics, fueling a series of prime minister firings and assassination over the country's alignment with China. The king expelled the Chinese soon afterwards. Also, there was a Chinese defection to the United States in Burundi, one of the first in the world. In October 1965, there was an abortive coup, which sparked a wave of ethnic violence. The ambassador and three other embassy officials were declared persona non grata for allegedly interfering in internal affairs. Soon after, 25-year-old Captain Michel Michombero disposed the king in a coup, first handing power to the king's son, then assuming control for himself in 1966. Michombero's government included several individuals who detrusted the United States, and he restored ties with China. During Burundi's tenure on the Security Council from 1970 to 1971, its ambassador verbally attacked the U.S. government. In 1972, Michombero's Tutsi-dominated security forces launched a campaign, as the U.S. Embassy described it, quote, to kill every possible Hutu male of distinction over the age of 14, end quote. According to a report by the Holocaust Museum in 2019, there was a, quote, near total silence from the U.S. government. Although President Nixon wanted to show moral outrage by issuing a statement disapproving of Burundi's genocide, that never happened. Michombero was overthrown in 1976, and his successor was suspicious of the United States. Burundi's new leader picked fights with the Catholic Church and foreign missionaries, and his government authored the UN resolution equating Zionism with racism. Washington warned it would break relations if human rights abuses continued. Eventually, U.S. diplomats made some headway, increasing the Peace Corps, promoting USAID initiatives, and starting education and training for the Burundian military. In 1987, Pierre Buyoyo seized power and moved the country towards the West, dismantling the former government's Marxist outlook, promoting reconciliation, and setting the stage for democratic elections. This was a harder task than expected. There was an outbreak of violence in 1988, leaving 10,000 people dead. U.S. diplomats pressured 
Buyoyo to continue his reforms, leading to the establishment of the Commission of National Reconciliation, as well as multi-party elections in 1992, which Buyoya lost to Hutu politician Melkor Dadaye, the country's first elected president. Dadaye was assassinated four months later, and Burundi became enmeshed in a civil war in which 300,000 people died. Interim governments failed to stop the bloodletting, and one of Burundi's presidents died alongside Rwanda's leader when their plane was shot down in 1994. Buyoya seized power in a coup in 1996. U.S. officials, including former Congressman Harold Wolpe, played an active but secondary role during the peace process from 1993 to 2005. Regional leaders, including Mandela, enlisted President Clinton's help at critical junctures during the process. In 2005, Buyoya, Burundi political parties, and most of the warring groups signed the Arusha Accords. Pierre and Kirinziza, a former rebel, won elections in 2005. When he reached the end of his two terms, he amended the constitution to stay in power. The United States opposed his term extension and became concerned about ethnic violence and hate speech, as well as rebel groups sponsored and trained by Rwanda. In response, the United States and the European Union imposed sanctions. Inkirinziza defiantly held on to power for another five years before agreeing to step down. Fellow rebel leader and military officer Everest Daishimiye won at the ballot box and became president two months ahead of schedule because Inkirinziza died, allegedly, of COVID-19. The UN and U.S. congressional leaders have expressed alarm about the human rights situation and have cautioned countries to stop rushing so quickly to reset relationships. So, Nicole, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or failure? So I think this one, as you referenced in your history, is really about the limit of our influence when it comes to third termism generally and in Kurenziza's approach to his election specifically. Rising violence in Burundi, as well as the third termism approach generally within the United States government and with European allies resulted in a push to isolate the regime. And this include the sanctions that you mentioned. It also included an effort to ensure that Burundian peacekeepers serving in Amazon were not rotated back into the security services in Bujumbara, which is, a, you know, sort of an interesting approach to try and prevent the expansion of skilled security services at a time when there was real concern about whether there was going to be unrest led by the security services as they went into that election cycle. The EU cut budget support to the government. They helped directly pay security services in the country in order to create some neutrality between Minkurenziza and security forces, all in the hopes that somehow this would prevent the ability for Minkurenziza to be able to take that third term. That's a lot of, I think we could call it interference, right or wrong, into an election cycle that did not belong to the United States. And I really do think that there was a sense that this might make a real difference. And ultimately, Nkurziza won re-election with some 70% of the vote. I don't think it was possible for the U.S. government and allies to do nothing, right? I think it's important to speak out. But this wasn't a situation in which our efforts made a huge difference. Kareen, can you talk a little bit about what the Biden administration might do now? We're in a very different place, I believe, in the country. So eager to hear your thoughts about what might be possible. Thanks, Nicole. I think first, in order for the for a strategy to be sound, it would need to address and tackle Burundi, both as a country, but also as an actor in the dynamics of the broader Great Lakes region. I'm glad you've referenced other countries in the region and the dynamics that have played out um, since 2015 and, they, and even before. 
To illustrate this point, I would like to point out to refer to the Arusha Peace Agreement, because after 12-year-long civil war, uh, let's remember that the U.S. provided the necessary leadership alongside South Africa and other governments to craft a uh, peace agreement that anchored two fundamental changes in the politics of Burundi and the region. The first one was the recognition of one man, one vote through free, fair and credible elections. And secondly, it provided institutional mechanisms to secure the minority. And the peace agreement, that peace agreement that ended a long, ruthless civil war, also did something else. It brought about stability in the region, including in Eastern Eastern Congo, specifically looking at the region in South Kivu. So with that in mind, I think it will be important for the U.S. uh, administration to craft a policy centered on human rights and democracy with one central project at the heart of it. And that will be to ensure that Burundi's next cycle of elections occurs in a rights-respecting environment. That Burundi experiences, probably for the first time since 1993, free, fair and transparent elections. That would entail securing confidence-building measures for refugees to return. We still have a huge section of the population that's, that's still in refugee camp uh, in the GRC, in Rwanda, in Tanzania, and uh, as far as Zambia, so even in, in Southern Africa. It would entail the release of thousands of political prisoners, calling on the government to remove, uh, for instance, from security services, post and other executive branches, officials who have been credibly implicated in serious human rights violations, and call on the government to to really end as much as possible political interference in the judicial system, facilitate victims' access to justice, and ensure progress on some of the emblematic cases local civil society organizations and human rights organizations have have documented over the years. In a nutshell, it would be critical for the U.S. to boost its support for political pluralism and the ability of civil society organizations to operate freely and and independently provide assistance on accountability for rights abusers, adherence to the rule of law, freedom of expression and association. It would entail, obviously, rallying Africans and international partners to such an approach, rally important stakeholders, voices, thought leaders in the sub-region to drive an agenda solely based on forging a roadmap towards Burundi's next elections. I know it's ambitious, but it's visible. And very importantly, I think one key An important step would be to reinstate a Great Lakes uh, special envoy who would facilitate shuttle diplomacy, coordinate U.S. engagement uh, with other stakeholders, such as the uh, East Africa community, the International Conference on the Great Lakes region, etc. I think a second issue I can think of would be for the administration to target efforts to support COVID-19 relief and long-term recovery. As we speak right now, family members, friends, people we know, people we don't know, are really succumbing to COVID-19. And Burundi is faced with currently a tragic situation. Judd, if you were back in charge, how might you start to make all that happen? Well, believe it or not, there's some good news here. And the good news is that because of all of the issues around 2015 that you talked about, Nicole, and I talked about in the history section, there's sort of some of the mechanisms in place. You know, U.S. government as a rule is slow to react to an emerging crisis. And then Uh, slow in stopping to focus on it, right? So I don't think that we've lost a lot of the institutional memory around Burundi because that period was so dramatic. And so we can reactivate and to 
revitalize some of those efforts. And I think what what Corrine was talking about, in particular about the regional perspective, and I think the Europeans who are, I clearly want to turn the page on Burundi. I mean, that's a really important effort is to make sure that we're on the same page with our partners. And then I kind of alluded to it earlier, but we have congressional leaders like uh, Senator Reich, who really wants to focus on this and says some really important things. So it's not often that we have that kind of lash up on some of the smaller countries. So let's work within the interagency on these issues because we actually have some of the muscle memory. Tap those voices on Congress to help us do some of the heavy lifting, uh, but then make sure we're working with the region and the Europeans and the UN to not get too far afield because there definitely seems like there's a desire to just sort of call this a victory. Now, on the envoy, we're not going to be able to litigate it here. I have some strong views about envoys that I've written about in the past, but I would say let's take a really hard look at what Corrine's suggesting, making sure that that's not something that is already resident in the State Department. If the conclusion is that the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Central Africa can't do it, then I'm more open to it. But I have this sort of natural allergy to sort of creating more and more offices or secretariats in the U.S. administration, more bureaucracy that doesn't always have as much staff as one thinks on the outside. But that's a whole other episode. Corrine, one big idea. I keep going back to the Arusha peace agreement. Can we have a program around revisiting these different peace agreements in the region? You had the Inter-Congolese Dialogue. You had the, peace, the Arusha peace agreement. You had the uh, South Sudan agreement. And ha- what have we learned from that? What are the lessons learned? But, but more, more specifically, how can we avoid that the next cycle of elections in those countries present us with the same obstacles? It's difficult, at least for me, to get out of that. The other idea that I'm having as I'm, I'm saying this is how about really an initiative looking at human rights and leadership training, not only for political exiles, but also aspiring politicians inside Burundi, for instance. Karim, let's uh, go uh, in the Wayback Machine, because I want to talk to you about something I found in the archives, which is that when King Mabutsa visited uh, with President Johnson in 1964, Burundian dancers came to the State Department to the courtyard and put on a performance. The question is that if we were doing this in 2021, what do you think would be the way that you know, you'd want to represent uh, Burundian culture, you know, in, in Washington, D.C.? Definitely our royal dramas. I mean, these are they are well, world renowned, by the way. So whether in Europe, they also in America, I think in Maine, um, we have a number of Burundians who have taken up to actually revive the practice. So very quickly, Burundian drums hold a central place in our culture and identity. There's a whole mythical history behind them. And drummers, Burundian drummers, are fantastic. They have this majestuous, uh, fantastic dynamic uh, sound and beautiful dances as well. Burundian drummers would be my choice. And having, why not, even being even more creative, having Jennifer Hudson singing alongside Burundian drummers <laughs> during a Burundian state visit would be a cool yes. thing to see, right? I love that. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.